Okay, let's get started. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We get some guys shut those doors back there, please. I'd appreciate that. From the beginning to the end, 31 chapters in 13 weeks. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation in 13 hours. That's warp speed from infinity and beyond, okay? So, uh, let's start with uh, prayer tonight as we get into uh, chapter 15 of the story called God's Messenger. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, it enlightens us, that when we see how all of this fits together to create one story, revealing one person, Christ, um, the Bible comes alive to us. So tonight, open our, our minds to understand the Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A well-placed, clearly written sign can keep you safe and even save your life. Just think about it. We all appreciate signs that are intended to protect us from danger when it's near. Um, you pull up in the driveway and it says, beware of dog. What are you going to do? I'm going to beware of dog. I have been bitten so many times, even when I am beware of dog. So it's important. If it says bridge out, it means the bridge is out. And it, it, it's a warning. Uh, in chapter 15 of the story, we meet God's signpost. Have you ever thought about the prophets of the Old Testament as warning signs? Signposts. God lovingly placed them right in the middle of the roads where his people walked so their voices could give clear warnings. These men were faithful, passionate, and relentless. Sometimes the people listened. Often they went right past the signpost, ignored the prophets, and drove off the cliff. Over and over, God would send his messengers, the prophets. God's plan never changed. The promise, the covenant that he had made with Abraham and David was going to be accomplished with or without Israel and Judah's compliance. God wanted to bring the people back into a loving relationship with him. As the prophets spoke, the cry of God's heart could be heard. So the prophets were signs posted by God at strategic times and locations communicating a word from God. Usually, not always, it was a warning. Sometimes it's an instruction. So let's start with Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. He says, remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me. Israel, for I have redeemed you. So, would Israel listen? If this is a signpost, if this is God handing a sign to Isaiah and he holds it up in front of Israel, what I just read is on the sign. Would you listen to the sign? Would you read the sign and do, return to me, O Israel? So, let's go to Hosea 4.1 and see another prophet. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness. There's no love. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing. Sound like today? There's only cursing. There's only lying. There's only murder. There's only stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns. And all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, they're dying. It's like death is everywhere. So if Isaiah's the prophet and Hosea is the result that they didn't listen to the prophet, read the sign that God gave him, what has happened to the family of God? So what's happening? What happened to Israel? Were there not any Abrahams and Davids left in Israel? I mean, they were obedient. Is there anybody left who will listen, to the, read the sign and obey? 
Listen carefully. I find this phenomenal. There were 38 kings in all. In the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms, 38 kings in all. And only five of them did right in the eyes of God. And all of them were in the southern kingdom of Judah. That's not very good odds, is it? The northern kingdom, Judah, northern kingdom, um, that wouldn't have been Judah, that would have been Israel. The northern kingdom had 19 kings in their 200-year history, and all of them did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That um, northern kingdom would have been Israel, not Judah. That's a, that's a mistake. Jer- Jeroboam and Ahab were some of the most notable. God didn't just abandon his people. He didn't, which you would think at some point he would just abandon his people. But he raised up prophets and messengers to deliver his message and give them warnings. One of those men that God would hand a sign and and hold it up is Elijah. He was a prophet in the days of King Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel. So God plans a contest, a showdown of sorts, to draw Israel back to the one true God. So we're going to use um, Elijah as the example of God's messenger. So let's go to 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. <clears throat> you know what Elijah's saying? Until I say rain, it's not going to rain. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that's a literal story? Yes. Do you think God can have a a raven, like a crow, bring you supper and breakfast? Yes. Yes. Now, years go by. He's, what's Elijah? He's gone to King Ahab, says it's not going to rain anymore. So years have gone by, and the drought brings trouble and death. There's a famine in the land of Israel, and Ahab has been searching for Elijah to put him to death. But God has provided for him these ravens. He has protected him, keeping him secure from King Ahab, which, by the way, he's put out a death warrant on him. He's got people looking for him. If you find him, he's going to die. So Elijah's just a man. Ahab is the king. He has the power to kill him, but God's protecting him. Let's go to verse 15. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Now this is after, uh, I believe it had been after seven years of drought. He he says, I'm going to go and stand in front of King Ahab. Well, King Ahab's going to kill him if he does, right? So Obadiah went to meet King Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. So there's going to be a meeting of these two adversaries. And why is it an adversarial relationship? Because when this seven-year drought began, it began the day that Elijah walked into Ahab's office and says, it's not going to rain anymore until I say so. Well, you think King Ahab's going to like this guy? He wants to kill him. So Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, and Ahab went and met Elijah. When Elijah, when he saw Elijah, when King Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and followed the Baals. So here immediately, what's he do? He calls out the king. Here's a man. Listen, here's a man standing in front of a man who has the ability to put him to death. King Ahab. And he says, you are the trouble. You have abandoned the Lord and you have followed Baals. That's the false god. Now summon. So, so now who's in charge? Here's my point. Who's in charge? 
The king is standing next to a nobody who's getting lunch from birds, okay? So, so he, who's in charge? Verse 19, Elijah looks at the king and says, Now summon the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So here's my question. Why doesn't Ahab just kill him? Why don't you just kill him? You ever thought about that when you read these stories? You ever wonder why, why when Moses kept going in to see Pharaoh, why didn't Pharaoh just say, oh, cut his head off? Why didn't he just kill him? He can't. Do you understand that the God that's sending the birds with breakfast is there? You can't do anything apart from his will. Ahab not only allowed Elijah to live, but he complies. This is amazing. He complies with Elijah's instructions. It's like Elijah is now in charge. He complies with Elijah's instructions to assemble the false prophets at Mount Carmel. So verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah, by the way, I've been to Mount Carmel twice. Amazing, amazing scene. At the top of Mount Carmel is this giant statue. And it is a statue of Elijah with his foot on the neck of these uh, Baal prophets. Fixing to cut their heads off. So it's, it, that's still there. To, that, that's statues there today. So Ahab sent word throughout Israel. He assembled the prophets to Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people. Now it's not just the false prophets. Now the the common folk of Israel are assembling. And he said this, here's the signpost, okay? What, What are we trying to communicate? That God's prophets, his messengers, they hold up a sign that God gave them to hold up. They didn't, the prophet doesn't write the sign. The prophet holds up the sign. The prophet is just the messenger. He doesn't write the message. He just shows the message or communicates the message. So what's the message? So Elijah stands in front of the people who have abandoned God and gone into idolatry and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. He's like, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes saying nothing says more than something. There is no neutral in God's family. God or Baal, God or nothing. Because if you choose nothing, you're gonna, if you choose to reject God, you're going to end up with nothing. All of Israel is now assembled on Mount Carmel to watch the showdown between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. This is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I'm, if you read the story, I love it. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. So get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you, prophets of Baal, you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Whoa, I love this idea. The God who answers by fire, he's the, and he's saying this. Listen, who's in the audience? The prophets of Baal, King Ahab. And all the people have assembled. The people that have abandoned God and followed after Baal. They're standing there, so they think. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. They shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made at noon. They've been doing it all morning, okay? So four hours maybe. They've been crying out, oh, Baal, answer us. 
At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Oh, I love this guy. Now, now put the context. He's the guy who went into Ahab, the king of, of Judah's office, and says, it's not going to rain till I say it's going to rain. Bye. See you later. And he calls a meeting with the king, meets with him. Why doesn't the king kill him? He, he's, he knows that he's, a, that he's protected by God. He knows. And now he's outnumbered. Listen, there's 450 of them, and there's one of him, and he's cocky. He's taunting them. And, he, he, and uh, they dance around. He taunts them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So, <clears throat> what do you, okay, if you're a prophet of Baal, what are you going to do at this point? They're going to shout any louder. So they shouted louder and slashed. Listen, this is important for today. Listen, for this culture we're living in. So they slashed themselves with swords and spears, which was their custom until blood flows. Now, let me, let me totally take a sidetrack here. There is a generation of young people coming up who are cutting themselves. I'm asking you, where do you think that comes from? They're cutting themselves. What are these people doing in this scene? They're cutting themselves, which is their custom till the blood flows. Baal. Baal worship. I don't have time to get into that right now. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, now it's been all day. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. So let me ask you a question. Who is directing this contest and why? Do you think Elijah sat out there getting bird food for breakfast and he's come up with this? No. God has, God has handed this to Elijah. This is Elijah's, this is God's plan. So let's go to verse 30. Then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They've been watching the Baal show all day. Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each tribe descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, I, do you think the audience is paying attention right now? I think so. Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. On the, on the, the, the animal carcass and on the wood, both. Do it again. He said, and then he did it again. Do it a third time. I said a few minutes ago he was cocky. He's a believer. There's a difference. He believes that God is who he says he is. And do you think, that Eli do you think Elijah would say do it a third time if Elijah was the one who came up with this? No. But would you say it, do it a third time, put water on it a third time, if you knew that God was the one doing it, you're just the servant in the program. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And I am, what? Your servant. And have done these things. Why? Because I think it's a great idea. Oh, there's a lesson right here. This sentence has a lesson. God is not interested in our clever ideas about how to make him famous. He's interested in us submitting our lives as servants so that his plan will be displayed through us instead of our plan displayed through us. Notice again, I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Seeking God's will, God's way. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Why is this show taking place? So that they will turn their hearts back to you. God wants to redeem them. He doesn't want to kill them. He wants to redeem them. Now I'm talking about Israel. He's about to kill the prophets. But he's wanting to redeem Israel. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The people cry out what God had destined from their hearts from the beginning. A single truth. What did the Lord want in advance that they would say, you are our God. What did it take to bring them to that point again? A physical manifestation of his power over the false gods that they had been following. Remember the whole idea is, uh, remember what Elijah says when he calls upon the people? You have followed after the Baals, after the God of Baal, which is nothing, which is nothing. So what will God do now? And what about Ahab? And what about the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah? What about them? Do you still think you can be neutral? Let's, let's read that verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. Whew. One guy. He's one guy. He has them brought down to the Kishon Valley and he slaughters them. Do you think you can be neutral? Elijah prays at that point after the slaughter of the false prophets and he prays. It's been seven years. Can you imagine what it would be like seven years, no rain? He prays and rain comes to Israel. Ahab rushes home to tell his wife Jezebel about the death of the false prophets. Now here's something that you might have missed. You remember when this story started presenting itself, they were the false prophets that ate at Jezebel's table. So they were actually living in the house where Jezebel and the king lived. So how do you think she's going to take that, that, that Elijah's killed all of her false prophets? How will she respond? So let, let me give you two options. Will she repent like the people of Israel did, fall on their face prostrate? Lord, he is God. Or will she become angry? I think you know. Chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. I want you to get this. Uh, only men can understand this next part. <laughs> she sent a message to Elijah. Jezebel, a woman, one person. She's not the king. She sends a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I'm seeing a Clint Eastwood movie show up right now, that by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. Now, let, let's, let's put this in context. Do you think at this point Elijah is on a spiritual high? Huh? He has just called down fire from heaven. He has executed 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. All the people are on their face saying, the Lord, he is God. This one guy has brought this revival to Mount Carmel. Do you think he's on a high? Why wouldn't he be? He has just prayed for rain. Rain is starting to fall. He's the man, right? He's the man. What could he possibly be afraid of? A woman. She is going to terrify this man of God. Is this amazing? I mean, come on, it's amazing. So verse 3, you think I'm making it up? Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He is terrified. Why? 
So she put out a warrant on him. She's put out a hit on him. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, it gets worse. He left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under the broom tree, and asked God to let him die. But why? Well, you picture the thing so God might say, why do you want to die? Because Jezebel's coming. I'd rather die. I, just go and kill me. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. How do you get from Mount Carmel hero to under a broom tree, scared of a woman that you're asking God to let you die? How does that happen? So let me ask you a question. You ever been there? I don't mean that a woman's trying to kill you. If that is your story, don't tell me. I don't want to know any more details about your life than that. But come, be, be real. The spiritual story is this. Have you ever been, because I'm going to tell you, I have. I have. I have been at a place where I am, I am Mount Carmel, Elijah level excited. And one thing, one thing can knock all the air out of me. You ever been there? It's real. You know, I, I, I make this funny, but it's not funny. How do you, when your mountaintop experience drops into Death's Valley and you just say, Lord, I wish I could just die. You know what? I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. So how will God respond to Elijah's pity party? Because it's a pity party. It's a pity party. He's feeling sorry for himself. Verse 5. So what's, what's the context? He's just said, Lord, let me die. Let me die. Then he lay down under the tree and he fell asleep. And all at once, the angel touched him and said, get up and eat. God sends an angel. He looks around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days, 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So how did God respond? He sent an angel. He sent food. He sent water. He sent instruction. What's next? So Elijah gets up. And he is physically and spiritually refilled by God's presence and God's provision. And he starts on a journey. What's at Horeb? What's at Horeb? It's the mountain of God. He's going to, God is calling him to an encounter. I, I want you to come. I know you think you're ready to die. I've got something bigger in your future than death. Come, come. I got something bigger than death. I'm going to tell you about it. Come. So how will God display himself to Elijah? I don't know how many years it took me to figure this one out. So how will God reveal himself when you've gone, when you've gone from the Mount Carmel mountain to the broom tree desert? How will God reveal himself? Listen carefully. He went into a cave and he spent the night. He's on Mount Horeb. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, if the answer to the question was, you told me to come here. He replied, I have been very, and then here's Elijah. Listen, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, Lord. Just me. And now they're trying to kill me too. That's Jezebel. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Let me ask you a question. This is so important. How did God communicate to Elijah in this moment? 
Was it the wind? Was it the earthquake? Was it the fire? What, what, what was it? He whispered. There was a whisper. Why? Supposition. What, why, why do you think that's... Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he speak in the, in the earthquake? Why wouldn't he speak in the wind? Why wouldn't he speak in some dramatic fashion? He wanted Elijah to stop and listen to me. Listen. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Be still. How do you deal with this? Now, by the way, I don't have time tonight to get into the details of what he told him in the whisper. But here's the summation of what he told him. Listen, Elijah, you're not done. You want to die? You're not done. You have no idea what I've got planned for you. I'm going to send you out. You're going to anoint a king and a kingdom. What you're about to do will establish a new king and a kingdom. Now, he's talking about in, in that region. He's going to announce king. And then you're going to go and you're going to get Elisha. And you're going to anoint him. He'll be your successor. And then when you're done with all of that world-changing stuff, da, 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 I'm going to come and get you. And you'll be the second guy in the Old Testament that won't die. Now, do you think you're still afraid of Jezebel? Chapter 16. The beginning of the end of the kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom. With five minutes left to play in the basketball game, 30 points down, the fans begin to head for the parking lot. Why? Because it's over. The outcome looks unchangeable. This is today's scene as we watch the collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel and the seemingly inevitable demise of the little brother, Judah, to the south. There's one difference here. God, to God it isn't a game. So let's jump forward, 2 Kings 17, verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, that's in the southern kingdom, Hoshea, son of Elah, became the king of Israel the northern kingdom, in Samaria. And he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. There's a word. Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack King Hoshea. Now, where are we at? We're in the northern kingdom. This is not Jerusalem, Judah, this is northern kingdom. Assyria has risen to power. You know what the capital of Assyria is? Nineveh. Nineveh. So, uh, he, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal, and had paid him tribute. So there was already this relationship between uh, the king of Israel and this king of Assyria. Uh, he was already kind of in this servant role, which would be a mistake. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea, the, the king of Israel, was a traitor. For he had sent envoys to um, king of Egypt and no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized the king of Israel and put him in prison. The king of Assyria then invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites. And by the way, that deportation was more than 27,000 of them, Israelites. He settled them in Hala in Gozan on the Haber River and in towns of the Medes. Why? Let me tell you, this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the end. For the northern uh, ten tribes of Israel, this is, this is the countdown to, to gone. I mean gone. Why? Why would God allow the pagan nation of Assyria, Nineveh's the capital, why would he allow them to capture and conquer 
the chosen people of Israel, the 10 tribes of the north. If you've been coming to church here for the last year, the answer has always been the same. Idolatry and apostasy. Even after God sent prophets holding up signs, even though he sent warning after warning, they would not turn around. They refused to turn around. Listen carefully. But let's go down to verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. You see how simple this is? You know, you can read the Bible and say, well, I don't know how you come to that conclusion. Well, I can read. All of this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. So why is this kingdom collapsing? Because they sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from, from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. Why are they collapsing? They worshipped other gods. They followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced, the new stuff the new idolatry, the new apostasy. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all the towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every hill and under every spreading tree. What's the problem with that? A few weeks ago, I tried to cover this. What's the problem with setting up altars in various places on the high spots? Because God gave a specific location only to do it, Jerusalem. And yet they're doing it everywhere. Under every spreading tree, at every high place, they burned incense. As the nation whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They're, they're practicing the idolatry of the nation that God sent them in to replace. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel. Here's the signpost. He sends the prophets. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all of his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I command your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. The prophets, the prophets, the prophets, the prophets. What, what are they doing? They're giving the warnings. Did they listen? No. Why is the nation collapsing? Because they refused to listen to the message of God through the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. And they rejected his decrees and they rejected his covenant he had made with their fathers and warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. So would they, here's the question, would they, the northern kingdom, eventually find freedom and return to the land? Everybody listen, this is really important. So time and time and time and time over the period of the judges and even into the kings, the people would have one of these spells fall into idolatry and apostasy. God would chastise them, send the Philistines, send these, and, but they would always bring them back. Will he bring them back here? No. It's over. Is anybody listening? It's over. It's over. These 10 tribes are about to disappear. They're not coming back. It's over. That's what a lot of people don't really grasp. For these 10 tribes, it's over. It's finished. Verse 22. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam. He was the first king of the north. And did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence. And he warned, as he warned them, as he warned through all his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria. And they are still there. Now, they never came back. Not as, not as Israel. Not as Israel. Nope, nope, never happened. Now, something interesting is not included in the story, which we're basing a lot of this on. 
it was what followed their deportation into Assyria. So I'm going to insert something here that I find very interesting. Listen carefully. Verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvain, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. So listen carefully. So Assyria has come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And now either everybody's dead or they've been deported. They've been taken away as slaves. But what's going to happen to the land if you just leave it abandoned? Well, it'll grow up. It's not good for anybody. And the king of Assyria didn't want that. So what do they do? They, they start bringing in foreigners, Babylon, Cuthah, Avah, Hamath, to settle them in the towns of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. They settle them in Samaria to replace the Israelites. So let's bring in our people and let them live in the land. Listen carefully. They took over Samaria and lived in the towns and, and, and I'll, I'll give you the hint. Have you ever wondered what the origin of the Samaritans are? And why didn't the Jews like Samaritans? You're about to see it. So they're bringing in foreigners and putting them in Samaria, and they became the Samaritans. Listen. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. Well, of course they're not going to worship the Lord because they're coming out of Babylon and all these pagan towns. So what's God going to do to the land now that all these foreign pagan people have moved into the land? What's God going to do? So he sent lions. Is this amazing? So they brought all these foreign people to live in Samaria to take care of the land. So God sent lions among them and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria that everybody you're sending down there, the lions are eating them. So do you want to get on the next caravan going down there? So the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the, know the God that that country requires. This is amazing. So they tell the king of Assyria that the lions are eating these people because these people don't know the God who runs that land, that promised land. He sent lions among them, which are killing them off because the people do not know what that God down there requires. Then the king of Assyria, this is amazing. The king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria, he moved back to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. And the lions quit eating them. Is that interesting? So do you think the southern kingdom of Judah is watching the news on their northern brother? Do you think that if you watched that happen to the north, you'd have a revival in the south? Now listen, to the north, that's 10 of the 12 tribes. And they're gone. They're gone. Assyria has taken over. They're gone. And by the way, they never came back. Assyria has devoured Israel. And now they come to devour Judah. But there's one difference. This is my favorite part tonight. There's one difference. One man. His name's Hezekiah. One man. Verse 1, chapter 18. In the third year of Hosea, we just talked about him. He's the guy who they deposed. Son of Eli, king of Israel. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem. We're down in the south now for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He, Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Wow, he's one of the good guys. There's only a few. He removed the high places. Remember that what's the problem with that? You're not supposed to do those sacrifices on those hills. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asher poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Why do you think he, why, why are, what's the problem with the bronze snake that Moses made? You remember the Old Testament? Look up and you'll live. They began to worship it. He tore down the, he, he 
broke to pieces the bronze snake Moses made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It, it was called Neshetan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands of the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Do you remember when I told you the northern kingdom, he was a vassal to the king of Assyria? That means that really he had yielded his authority to Assyria before Assyria ever captured them. Hezekiah was a righteous man. There were only five good kings out of 38, all of them from Judah. Hezekiah was perhaps the greatest of those five. I want you to notice the success is, that is offered to those who will do it God's way. Let's go back up and read verse 7 one more time. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in everything he undertook. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve the false king. So when the king of Assyria pressured Hezekiah, he refused to yield to him. The Assyrian king tried to intimidate Hezekiah. Now, now if you miss the context, you miss the power. He, Hezekiah has just defeated Israel. Uh, not Hezekiah. This Assyrian king has just defeated Israel. So now he's coming to the smaller Judah. The smaller Judah. He's just defeated them. So he looks unstoppable, right? Assyria looks unstoppable. So here we go, verse 19. The field commander, these are the Assyrians, said to them, tell Hezekiah, here comes the threat. Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have a strategy, you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom, Hezekiah, are you depending that you would rebel against me, the king of Assyria? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now. Here comes the coercion. Come now, Hezekiah. Make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. Then I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials? even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without the word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against the country and destroy it. Now, if you're Hezekiah and you're behind the walls of Jerusalem, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? The evil messenger even spoke to the people. The Bible says he spoke in their language. He spoke in Hebrew trying to convince them to surrender. You know what he's trying to do? If Hezekiah won't surrender, he spoke in Hebrew so the people on the wall, the Israelites on the wall could hear and become afraid and come out and surrender. So what will Hezekiah do? Remember, the death and destruction of the northern kingdom has not long passed. Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messenger and he read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread out before the Lord. He laid down before God. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Shinacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on the earth may know that you alone 
our Lord, our God. Don't miss verse 19. Hezekiah understands God's plan to reveal his glory to the nations of the world through the nation of Judah. I want you to look at 19 one more time. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands so that what? So that we might live through this? No, so that the kingdoms of the earth may know you. So that the Assyrians will know who you are. What, what do you think? The, okay. Do you know what Israel's primary purpose was in the Old Testament? To reveal God to the world. To receive God. And then reveal Him to the world. By becoming a different people, God would display His glory to the world through and fulfill the covenant of Abraham. That through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So what's the purpose of the church? The same. We are to receive Him and then reveal him to the rest of the world by being a different people. You see, Hezekiah understood that. The prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah. They're in the same time window. The prophet Isaiah comes with God's response to Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah has got the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem, and they are, they are a massive army. Um, so many of you can't count them. They are sure to lose this war. So God sends Isaiah to King Hezekiah. Here we go, verse 20. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I have heard your prayer. Wow. Concerning the Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Are y'all getting this? The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. In other words, what's God's answer to this taunt by the king of Assyria? That Israel mocks you and your great army. Listen carefully. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you are about to flee. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. You see, the king of Assyria thought he was insulting Hezekiah. He was insulting Hezekiah's God. And now, listen, he's angry. God is angry. You know how I know? Because I can read. Go down to verse 27. But I know where you stay. This is God. I know where you stay and when you come and when you go and how you rage against me. And because you, king of Assyria, rage against me, the God of heaven, and your insolence has reached the God of heaven's ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and I will put a bit in your mouth, and I will make you return to Assyria the way you came. I'm going to turn you around, and you're going to head home. Listen, this message comes to the king of Assyria. You think he's, what's he thinking? Thinking nobody can make me do that. God's mad. Verse 32. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. Not one. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. And by the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. Let me just say this battle's over. Just nobody knows it yet. Prayer won this battle. Hezekiah on his face in the temple won this battle. A man of God, a holy man's prayer. So I want you to look at these two guys. We started with Elijah. This holy man that turned a nation around. Now this holy man, Hezekiah, 
Elijah prayed and the heavens closed. Hezekiah prays and God is about to do something. One of the biggest, listen, one of the biggest events in the Old Testament is about to take place. Did he enter the city? The king of Assyria. Did he get a hook in his nose? Did he get a bridle in his mouth? Did he end up going home the way he came? Verse 35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all these dead bodies. That night, that night, the angel of the Lord enters the camp of Assyria that is surrounded Jerusalem and killed. The angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. You wake up in the morning and everybody's dead. It gets worse. Can it get worse? Verse 36. What about this king? Is he dead? Not yet. What about the hook in his nose and the bridle in his mouth and going back home the way you came? Verse 36, so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp. And when you saw 185,000 of your people dead, it'd be a good idea to break camp and go home. So he broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh. Those are the bad guys. We're the good Nineveh, right? They use an E-H. We do an A-H. We're the good guys. Yes. He returned to Nineveh and he stayed there. Listen carefully. One day, by the way, he went back the way he came. Just, it was prophesied. It is unstoppable. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrak, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, cut him down with the sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Ershaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. He lost. The northern kingdom. Listen, here's the summary. The northern kingdom of Israel is gone. Now you know where the Samaritans came from and why the Jews despised them as half-breeds. God had saved the kingdom of Judah because of the faithfulness of King Hezekiah, one man. However, Isaiah prophesies that the southern kingdom will fall. Just like the northern one. You're going to fall. They didn't fall in this scene with Hezekiah and Assyria, but you're going to fall. Isaiah 3.1. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah, Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. Who's doing it? Who's doing it? Assyria? Nope. Who's doing it? God. Verse 8. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. I, I don't know why, that just hit me today. This is America today. They parade their sin like Sodom. And what did God do? You want a, you want a comparison? They compare. He, before God comes to destroy Jerusalem, his proclamation is they parade their sin like Sodom. They do not even hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. So how will God keep his covenant promise to Abraham and to David if Judah falls? How's he going to keep his promise, this covenant, if everybody ends up dying? Assyria will fall. But Babylon is coming. Seventy years will be Judah's exile. God will keep his promise to Abraham and David, and Jerusalem will be rebuilt. They will fall. By the way, Jerusalem's going to fall. It fell in 586 B.C. But God kept his promise. They rebuilt um, Jerusalem and reestablished their homeland in the time of Nehemiah. But what about Hezekiah? This spiritual hero that, that's, that delayed the fall. Let's go to, let's finish with that tonight. Chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order. Uh-oh. You know what that means, don't you? You're going to die. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord. And remember, this is a powerful praying man. Don't count him out. He turned his face to the wall and he prayed. 
to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, before Isaiah had even left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah again. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. This is what the Lord, the God of, his, God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer. Wow, this is a praying man. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears and I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord and I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for the sake of, for the sake, for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil and he recovered. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the temple on the third day from now? And Isaiah answered, this is the Lord's sign to you from the sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? In other words, the sign is will the sun advance or will the sun decrease from its regular cycle? Hezekiah, it is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward 10 steps, said Hezekiah. Rather have it go back 10 steps. Then the prophet Isaiah called upon the Lord, and the Lord made the shadow go back the 10 steps it had gone down on the stairway of Hezekiah. You want a sign? That's a big one. Hezekiah was one man, but I want you to understand, two things happened because this man prayed. He delayed the fall of Judah. He delayed it. It did fall. Jerusalem did fall. But not on his watch. Number two, God gave him 15 more years after he was told to get your house in order. So here's the summary. That's one man, Elijah. That's one man, Hezekiah. Jesus was one man. And this entire story I'm going to hold it all up. This entire story is about God's plan to send this one man, his only son, Jesus, to save us. Everything about Elijah and Hezekiah is about to show us a one-man plan. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah made this announcement from God. He held up a signpost. And let me tell you, that signpost from Isaiah still stands today. Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? Everybody listen. This is it. Who has believed our message? This is it. This is what he's talking about right here. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Who's Isaiah talking about? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Uh, and like a root out of the dry ground, he had no beauty. He had no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should even desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here's the closing. I believe God is again right now regathering his people back to Israel. It's called Aliyah. He's doing it right now. 
I believe God will remember and fulfill this promise to Abraham and David. Everything in the covenant that he made a promise to David and to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. To Abraham, he said this, church, and it affects every one of us here. All the nations of the world will be blessed by what I'm going to do through you. All the nations of the earth, all of them, Gentile, Jewish. And to David, he said, I will place a king on your throne that will establish an eternal kingdom. Every one of those words is going to take place. All of them. There is a king coming that will sit on David's throne and establish an eternal kingdom. And here's the last word. Who has believed our message? That's Isaiah. Who has believed the message? So we don't normally offer invitations during these Wednesday night sessions, but I feel like I need to say, I'll stay around after this is over. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing. I just know that a lot of stuff's happening right now. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff's happening. So I'm staying up front. If you need to talk to somebody, you need a decision you need to make, who has believed the Lord's message? I do. I pray you do too. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these, uh, these messages, Lord, that we can, we can put all of this together into one story, one story. One man, Jesus. It all reveals one man. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we can be healed. We can make peace with you. All of this is a single revelation of the Son of God. So, Father, I pray that we will see, hear, understand, follow your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.